0: Hope you're ready. Christmas is sneaking up on us this year. Happy holidays, everyone. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am excited for this holiday season. And let me tell you, I'm excited to record this podcast. And you know why? I have a new laptop. You would not believe the troubles I have been enduring since I upgraded the driver on my microphone Three months, you know, you'll record a segment, you'll go to listen to it, and halfway to three-quarters of the way through, it starts to crackle, and you have to re-record it, and then you have to always unplug and re-plug it so that it starts to work again. It was a nightmare. So I am absolutely thrilled. I feel like the shackles have fallen from my hands. So I hope you have an exciting holiday season ahead of you here in Germany we celebrate Christmas on the 24th. So Christmas is actually coming on Friday in Germany. And actually, my girlfriend, who is Bolivian, they also celebrate on the 24th. So I am a North American. I'm from Canada, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Of course, we traditionally celebrate on the 25th. So it, we got a lot of Christmas ahead of us. And uh, yeah, it is sneaking up quickly. I have most of my holiday shopping done. But if you find yourself cornered, And you have a miner in your life, you may consider the Northern Miner newspaper. You can get it in physical or digital format. Just go to northernminer.com slash subscribe and we will bail you out of your Christmas conundrum. And you know, we may have a great year for gold ahead of us. So this may be the year to dive in and get that, you know, alpha that the Northern Miner provides with, with its unique profile of these junior mining companies, you know, and we all know those junior miners. That's where you get like the multiple X's, but be careful, folks. That's all I have to say. I got into this business with the rare earth stocks about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. Yeah, I mean, I did fabulously with that, but if you put it all together, all the investment in these stocks, I'm not sure how well I did, maybe up a little bit. So you really have to be careful. And another thing to consider at this time of year is tax loss season. This is something to really take seriously, especially for you kind of early investors. I'm looking closely in Germany. Again, I'm neck deep in crypto, and I'm learning all sorts of things I don't want to know. So there is still time to make adjustments. It's been a banner year for many people. So take a look, do your research. It is eye-opening and it is something that you definitely want to do. And it's a good way to set yourself up for next year as well. Looking at the markets, I mean, it's been a tough slog these last three weeks, hasn't it? I mean, this Omicron thing really kind of rained on the parade. It felt like we were about to just rocket higher. And then Omicron came on the scene. Interestingly, you look at the 10-year bond, I mean, it's just like a rock on the weekly at 1.423%. So, I mean, we remain at 1.42%. I think there's been some volatility in between, but when we come check in here, we just see the same number. So that is interesting. Uh You're starting to sense that maybe there is a bottoming in the markets, but who knows? Let's see. I mean, it's getting late for a Santa Claus rally. I don't even know if we could call it that at this point, unless things really went crazy for the next week. But I don't know if we can expect that. I wouldn't necessarily plan on it. There are very smart people who are saying you should that you should prepare for inflation. There are very smart people who are saying we're heading for a deflation. You should have more cash. There are people who are saying we're heading for deflation and you should have more gold and not necessarily cash. So It's a lot for the retail investor to consume. And so my takeaway is diversification. If you are all in, like many of us are at this point, hoping for our Santa Claus rally, uh, if you are all in, if we get a move higher, take the chance to diversify into a bit of cash. As you should have before, as I should have before, take the time and diversify. Because we don't know where this is going the Fed is tightening on the taper. And my whole thing with this Fed business and this inflation deflation, it appears to me as if this inflation is supply driven. It has to do with these supply lines. Again, we don't have enough oil. We don't have enough natural gas here in Europe. It's getting pretty expensive. Uh, we don't have enough stuff coming in. There are these, you know, potential Lockdown, zero tolerance in China. There are, it's just hard to get things moving, and that is raising prices, seemingly. Shortage of semiconductors, all this stuff. So we have this, you know, supply side driven inflation. Meanwhile, the Fed is tightening monetary policy as a result, but Interestingly, like this is just how I see it, feel free to disagree, but I'm not sure that the monetary policy is necessarily the cause of the inflation. It's not the money supply. I mean, maybe it is, we don't know, but it seems to be the difficulty in getting things from one place to another, in producing things, and the more expensive copper, the input costs, Again, it's back to this idea, like the Fed, you know, tightening or loosening, that doesn't create more copper. The Fed tightening and loosening does not create more oil or natural gas, at least not immediately. So that's my take here. And so as we've been hearing for 10 years from the gold bugs and the inflationistas, Tom Keane on Bloomberg likes to call them, we've been told that it's because of the so-called money printing which it sounds like it really is money printing, but that's also debatable. But it's not clear that that's the cause here. So that's the weird sort of framework I see, which just makes, I think it does make sense to be cautious here and to frankly not be all in. So if we get a run up here, you may want to diversify, not financial advice, but that's probably what I'm going to be doing, just into something a little more solid. So with that, We have a great show lined up ahead of you. We have Trent Mell from Electra Battery Metals, and he's in conversation with Frick Ells, executive editor of Mining.com, and they have a very interesting discussion. Again, Trent is talking about these very things, supply lines, which he says are getting too big. He says we need to focus on domestic nickel production, something we've been pounding the table here at the Northern Miner podcast on for two years. I totally agree. And we have the resources for it. We can do this. And so a very interesting discussion. Uh, it confirms a lot of things that maybe we already thought and adds some more details to get us a clearer and clearer picture of what's going on in these markets. So lots to look forward to there. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube where we also host these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Chile has elected a new president, and we have a story here about how the Chilean miners are asking the new president-elect, Gabriel Boric, to foster the country's industry. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. It says here, a leftist millennial who rose to prominence <laughs> a leftist. I don't know. Is leftist pejorative? It's... I'm not sure. It's sort of like right wing, right? I mean, is right wing a pejorative? Anyways, let's not dive into that. Into the... A leftist millennial who rose to prominence during anti-government protests in 2019 was elected as Chile's next president on December 19th, following a bruising campaign against a free market and anti-immigrant candidate often likened to former U.S. President Donald Trump. The National Mining Society, Tsunami, an industry body, congratulated Gabriel Boric and said voters had, quote, sent a clear message, end quote, about the need to maintain Chile's economic and social development, quote, we trust that the spirit of programmatic convergence moderation and openness to dialogue shown during the last week of the campaign will prevail. Boric, a 35-year-old former law student, vowed during his campaign to bury Chile's quote, neoliberal, end quote, economic mode. Although he later softened his message, he has kept the idea of giving the state a more active role in the sector, as well as higher royalties. Now, As we all know, or if you don't, Chile again is sort of seen as a bellwether and a bit of a leader in the mining world in Latin America in terms of adopting what we might call Western friendly policies. This has changed in the last year or so and it looks like this is going to continue against the neoliberal direction. And the word neoliberal is a whole thing you could could probably spend a show unpacking what that word means because it gets used pretty casually. But generally in Latin America, you know, it's sort of seen from a Latin American perspective as what you might think of as Western corporate capitalist, you know, corporations run amok, you know, low regulation and free market privatization, you know, that's sort of how a lot of Latin Americans interpret the word neoliberal, at least according to my girlfriend. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's how it's often interpreted in Latin America. Continuing on, he is also a fierce supporter of a state lithium firm and green investments. Since Chile not only is the world's top copper producer, but has the largest known reserves of lithium, his vision could prove positive for the country if he's able to deliver on campaign promises. Both copper and lithium are among the most coveted commodities. as They're used both in electric cars and infrastructure to support other greener technologies. During his victory speech, Boric reiterated he would oppose mining initiatives that, quote, destroy the environment particularly the controversial $2.5 billion Dominga Copper Iron Ore Project that was approved this year. Okay, so that is happening. Now, we have another story over in Peru. MMG shuts down Las Bambas Copper Mine as talks fail. So we're getting a really interesting picture here, thanks to Cecilia Gemazmi, once again, writing the article on what's going on in Latin America, which is such an important area of the world when it comes to copper and mining in general. So taking a look at this, Chinese miner MMG is ending copper production from its Las Bambas mine in Peru on December 18th after talks with locals to end a 27-day road blockade, the latest of several in the past year, failed. So you have a Chinese miner in there with one of the world's biggest copper mines. Now, we just saw it in the last story. I mean, these locals want more, a bigger cut. Okay, so MMG is playing hardball by shutting it down. Residents of Chumbivilcas province have been blocking the road used by Las Bombas since November 20th as they demand jobs and economic contributions from the company, which they say generally fail to benefit residents despite its great wealth. You know, go to our show with Mark Bristow. He talks at length about this, and he's one of the leaders in this area in the mining industry, Continuing on, the company, a unit of state-owned China Min Metals, warned earlier this month that it would halt Las Bombas as blockades were preventing essential supplies from reaching the operation. The mine, which accounts for 2% of the world's copper supply, will produce about 290,000 tons of copper concentrate this year to December 18th. The company has already said in July that 2021 production at the mine was expected to come in at the low end of its three hundred ten to 330,000 ton forecast. At issue is a dirt road that Las Bombas uses to transport the copper from its mine to a seaport. Communities along the road ask for more logistics transport contracts, financial compensation for the land used to build the mining road, and actions to reduce alleged damage to their crops caused by the large number of trucks on the road every day. They also want to create a fund with 8% of the mine's annual profits to finance productive and social development projects, while the company offered financing for individual social projects. So they want to fund with 8% of the mine's annual profits. And, you know, people can laugh at that. I might chuckle, but that's the reality out there now. And what are you going to do? I mean, this is social license. MMG believes it's the government's responsibility to pave the route, but a long-term solution would be building a separate freight train link and I just to have a question like, how much is that going to – we have it right here. I was going to say, how much is that going to cost? Construction of the railway would take more than five years and cost $9.2 billion, according to Peru's Transport and Communications Ministry. How much would it cost to give 8% of the profits is my only question. Is it $9.2 billion? Maybe that's more. Like, And if they are making tens of billions of dollars, well, maybe they should be giving a little bit more or meet these people halfway. I don't know the details on this, but just some random thoughts as I read this. So MMG facing some issues in Peru. Turning over to the story again by Cecilia Gemazmi, Rio Tinto picks outgoing Canadian ambassador to China as chairman. An interesting choice because China and Canada don't seem to be getting along that well in the last few years. So it's an interesting choice to pick the Canadian ambassador to China. Taking a look, Rio Tinto has picked outgoing Canadian ambassador to China and veteran management consultant Dominic Barton to lead its board as the miner tries to put the destruction of ancient rock shelters in Australia behind it. Barton will join the board in April and take over as chair after Rio Tinto's annual general meeting on May 5th, replacing current chairman Simon Thompson. Thompson, whose four-year stint as chairman was marred by the destruction of the Jukin Gorge Caves, announced earlier this year that he would be stepping down once a successor was found. The outgoing chairman acknowledged that he was, quote, ultimately accountable for the blasting at Jukin Gorge to expand an iron ore mine. And we have a quote from the new chairman, Dominic Barton, quote, It is a great honor to succeed Simon as chair of Rio Tinto. Returning to the private sector, I am excited to join a company with world-class people and assets as it navigates a shifting competitive landscape and seeks to emerge as a leader in the climate transition. So, more changes at Rio Tinto, more fallout, really, like over a year later of the Jukin Gorge incident. I mean, that was quite a while ago, and the fallout is still happening. Now, just on again, the supply chain, Victoria Gold lowers production guidance due to supply chain troubles. Now, this is an interesting story as well, and it is backed up by what we're sort of hearing from Mark Bristow on margins, the potential for margins to be lowered as a result of inflation. Now, we have a story on Victoria Gold. This is by Naimul Karim. Victoria Gold expects 2021 gold production to be 10% lower than its previous guidance of 180,000 ounces due to supply chain issues. It produced 114,726 ounces of gold in the first nine months of the year. So it's not just that costs are moving higher, it's that they can't even get what they need to get the gold out of the ground. As a result of the adjusted production guidance, all in sustaining cost per gold ounce is expected to be up to 5% above its earlier guidance of $1,175 per ounce. And we have a quote from John McConnell, CEO Quote, while it is disappointing to be revising our gold forecasts for 2021, our cash flow remains strong and we will realize the delayed gold ounces early in 2022. Like many companies, we are experiencing pressure on our supply chain. We continue to work with all our suppliers very closely to avoid such disruption as COVID-related challenges persist. The supply chain issues involved a five-week delay in receiving drip lines used to irrigate the heap leach pad, Low flow drip lines were installed instead until the new drip lines arrived, which resulted in less leach solution being applied to freshly stacked ore on the heap leach and therein extending the leach cycle. Freshly stacked ore contains the highest portion of recoverable gold and contributes significantly to gold production, the company said. We have a quote from Andrew McKitchuk at BMO, and he says, while today's announcement is negative, we expect the net long-term impact to be minimal. So more interesting supply line issues. A few M&As I want to touch on. Lundin Mining to Acquire Jose Maria Resources for $625 million. It's by Namul Karim. And this copper gold project is in San Juan, Argentina. And according to Lundin Mining CEO Peter Rockendell, quote, in our view, this project is a unique and scarce opportunity Lundin Mining has been following Jose Maria's advancements into a world-class ore body for a considerable period of time. So you can read all about that on northernminer.com. Gold Royalties makes an unsolicited offer for Elemental Royalties. And I went to Elemental Royalties' website, and yeah, they just have a bunch of royalties. So Gold Royalties is coming in, and this is by Northern Miner staff. And they are proposing to acquire elemental royalties in an all-share deal valued at $130 million. Now, an interesting point on these royalty companies, I think it was E.B. Tucker on YouTube, was saying how because royalties companies have their allocation basically locked in, they are not subject to the same inflationary pressures as the gold miners themselves. So these royalty companies are sitting pretty right now. Now, what's interesting, though, is when the royalty companies start sitting too pretty, the mining companies need to start renegotiating. So that can happen. It's not like, you know, if you're facing bankruptcy, unless your NSR goes down, you know, things can be renegotiated at that point. So interesting dynamics there, but nevertheless, a little bit of consolidation. I mean, nothing has happened here. It's simply an offer. And Gold Royalties said it is taking its offer directly to Elemental's shareholders after its two previous approaches to the junior, the first on October 21st and the second on December 15th, failed to engage Elemental's board of directors. Unsolicited. What's the difference between unsolicited and hostile takeover? I guess if the board comes out against it, it becomes hostile. Now, we have from a gold royalty press release, a quote, quote, gold royalty has completed three acquisitions in 2021. And in each case, the implied premium paid is higher today than at the time of the transaction announcements due to the strong performance of the gold royalty shares, which could further enhance the ultimate premium realized by elemental shareholders. So you can read all about that on Northern Miner. We have some analysts that weigh in, so if that interests you. And another headline... Bear Creek Mining acquires the Mercedes mine from Equinox, and that is a gold silver mine in Mexico. And Equinox took over the Mercedes mines previously when it took over Premier Gold Mines last December. So they're basically getting rid of one of the assets in a takeover and giving it to Bear Creek. And it looks like they will get a 2% net smelter return, NSR royalty payable on metal production from the Mercedes mining concession. So, not an insignificant thing. I mean, these royalties are hot right now, aren't they? And finally, global coal use to hit record high despite climate fight. This is by Cecilia Jemazmi. And just a couple of lines on this. Global coal-fired power generation is expected to rise by 9% and hit an all-time high by the end of 2021 despite efforts to slash carbon emissions, the International Energy Agency said today. Overall coal demand, including its use in steelmaking, cement, and other industrial activities, grew by 6% in 2021 to 8.11 billion tons, the Paris-based group said in its annual report. That puts demand on track to reach a new record high in early 2022 and to remain at that level for the following two years. Increases in coal demand in Asia will be offset by falling demand in the U.S. and the European Union by 2024. And we have a quote from IEA Executive Director Fatih Birol, and he says, quote, Coal is the single largest source of global carbon emissions, and this year's historically high level of coal power generation is a worrying sign of how far off track the world is in its effort to put emissions into decline towards net zero. Without strong and immediate actions by governments to tackle coal emissions in a way that is fair, affordable, and secure for those affected, we will have little chance, if any at all, of limiting global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. So the case for nuclear continues to strengthen. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 21st, the shortest day of the year, gold is trading at $1,790.49 per ounce. That is $7 higher than last week. Silver is also higher at $22.40 per ounce. That is 15 cents higher than last week. Platinum. Is a dollar lower at $932.29 per ounce, and palladium is higher at $1,770.19 per ounce. That is $87 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny lower at $4.32 per pound. Aluminum is three cents higher at $1.22 per pound. Lead is two cents higher. At $1.05 per pound, nickel is at $9 even, that is $0.05 lower than last week, and tin is at $17.94 per pound, that is $0.27 lower than last week, and cobalt is $0.31 higher at $31.73 per pound, and zinc is at $1.56 per pound, that is $0.05 higher than last week. So what do we see a slight move higher in the precious metals, while industrial metals continue to consolidate at higher levels, in particular aluminum, lead, cobalt, and zinc. So Dr. Copper, they say copper takes the temperature of the global economy. And what's interesting is Dr. Copper is holding pretty strong at $4.32 per pound. So sometimes no news is the news. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Electro Battery Metals CEO and President Trent Mell in conversation with Frick Ells, executive editor at Mining.com at the Global Mining Symposium. And they discuss the fragility of commodity supplies, particularly for battery metals, lithium and nickel and cobalt in particular, and also how Trent thinks that electra battery metals will be able to produce some of the cleanest, if not the cleanest cobalt sulfate on the planet. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and we will see you on the other side.
1: to be talking to you. You're in an ex- exciting phase of your business. Just two weeks ago, you kind of changed from first cobalt to electro battery materials. I first just need to say also that you, you have a two decade record in, in mining. So this is not your first company. You were also CEO of Falco, where you brought... 6 million gold ounces into being. You are head of mining for Patriot Securities. I believe over your 20 years, uh, M&A, equity financing, offtakes, takes et cetera, it all adds up to about $2.6 billion, which if my math is correct, is uh, $130 million a year. Tell us a bit about why we're no longer first Cobalt, but uh, Electra.
2: Yeah, thanks, uh, Frick, uh, for the opportunity and Anthony. But yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a ride. I started the company four and a half years ago, you know, 2017 cobalt was the best performing commodity and we set about on a journey to find cobalt for the North American electric vehicle market. Our success came in a different form. We, we were looking at mineral assets in Cobalt Ontario and again in the state of Idaho. So the Idaho asset is still very much a focus of ours. We still have an asset there, but you know, along the way we merged a few companies together we picked up this refinery. And, and I think in our discussions now with the downstream, you know, we're we're 12 months away from first production with the cobalt asset, the cobalt plant, but the automotive companies need more. And, and if you look at you think of the supply chain and all the investments we've seen this year, it's it's assembly, it's the battery plant, and now they're looking at the cathode active material. And and just before that, the next step upstream between our refinery and cathode material is, is PCAM, precursor material right. production. And that's a real gaping hole in North America. Yeah. And so the auto companies are saying, look, if you can create a complex like we see in Volta in Finland and, and elsewhere in China, create an environment where PCAM producer can come and co-locate with you, don't worry about the nickel. Like we, we can backfill all of that, all of that environment that with you. And so we've outlined now with the Electra name, I wanted to wait till the financing was done on the, on what is now phase one, the cobalt plant, but it's a four step process, uh, cobalt yeah. production next year, battery recycling, then nickel and, and PCAM to encompass a larger solution for the EV supply chain.
1: You're obviously you fuel to the finish for, for the cobalt plant, uh, and then then you go on to the next uh, phase, uh, which is recycling. I was I was wondering about that. I've read a few reports that says uh, recycling of battery materials is kind of in in the future. That we're going to need primary supply for a good while yet. Uh, we know when the battery in a Tesla is past this based life, you know, it goes into a battery pack for home solar. Tell us a bit more about the recycling, because that, that could be a big part of the whole EV story, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's big. It's, it's a huge priority for the EVs, the auto manufacturers, because they've got, they've got teams of people trying to figure out what do you do with end-of-life batteries. And you're right, Frick, the end-of-life battery for an EV is some time off, particularly on this continent where we're late to the party. On the other hand, we've all got phones and laptops, portable tools, toys, right, that have lithium-ion batteries. And so that's the market where everybody is focused. So the, the opportunity in the future is going to be fairly large homogeneous batteries. So actually in some ways, maybe, maybe it gets easier as the tonnage goes up. The opportunity today is a more diverse set of batteries that contain a lot of cobalt relative to an EV. So the opportunity there is is some high margin. The challenge you have with EVs today, or at least the the, the recycling component, and we've got a peer in the recycling market, looking to build a plant in the U S for some 300, 350 million U S and so the payback. When the tonnages are smaller, quite it's a, it's a long horizon. In our case, we're going to have a 200 million dollar plant built next year. Right, it'll be up and running. Same team, a lot of the same equipment. In fact, some of the equipment that's there now that we are not redeploying for the the new cobalt plant is going to be redeployed for recycling. So for us, it's a two step process. It's a demonstration plant next year, focusing on the leach and then the extraction, and then the second step is going to be the beneficiation of the extracted minerals into a usable form, so that you can kind of close that loop up. And right. you're learning it with a growing supply chain, and you're learning. You know, in tandem with their growing, uh, growing supply of batteries.
1: You said it's, it's quite cobalt-rich. The recycling material. So
2: we're talking uh, iPhones and mobile phones here. Yeah, it's the LCO cathode. So in contrast, right. the dominant cathode, of course, in the EVs, as you know, is the the NCM nickel cobalt man- manganese, and and the ratio of cobalt to nickel has, has gone down quite a bit. Not so with your your portable electronics. And so when we look at it, our, yeah. our I should I should point out our VP project development, Mark Traviscil, ran the Glencore smelter and Sudbury for a time. And he was there when they started whole battery recycling. So we've we've got some great bench strength and Mm -hmm. we've got a view the margin margin opportunity is big. You got to do it right. Uh, I think there's a lot of talk about technology. A lot of people like to tout their recycling processes. It's a leech, right? I I think we overstate that as an industry as part of our own sales pitch. I think the challenge really is the infrastructure required to get it off the ground.
1: Uh, I believe the the stuff is called uh, Black Mass, which uh, sounds a bit like a Stephen King novel. Um, tell us a bit more about that. How does this work exactly? Uh, you yeah, said no, it, it's that. a leech process, so maybe it's not it's not rocket science after all.
2: yeah, it's and and thank you for the prompt because uh, when you'll think of battery recycling, there are two distinct steps. the The first step is, you know, I'll call it more logistical the nature where you're uh, collecting the batteries. So a picture. You know warehouses all over America, uh, concrete bunkers because these things can catch fire, explode. So you, you collect the batteries, you assemble them, you discharge them, you take the casing, the plastics out, take the coil off of it, and then you're going to basically crush and sieve the residual. It's it's the the anode and the cathode material. And so what you're left with is a black sand, a black powder, which is why we call it the black mass. Not a very great name. Um, and so where we step in, not so much there because there's a lot of players that do that and do that well. People that are already in the auto supply chain, private company. You now a company like LiCycle or Redwood materials to much larger treasuries than ours want to do. I think both parts, certainly Lifecycle does. We've got 25 contacts around the world that are already doing that. Uh, Why? Because most of them are going to a pyrometallurgical facility. That happens to be in Sudbury where the recoveries aren't as good. The greenhouse gas emissions, they don't recover lithium. They don't get the graphite. And so where we step in is once that black mass is produced, it would get delivered to us uh, and then we would put it in solution. So we've been quietly doing quite a bit of work in the last six, eight months. Uh, We're about two weeks away from an engineering study where we're gonna release all our secrets, but you know, give an idea of what that might look like. It's a pretty low capex for us to step into that.
1: I guess a big part of of your move to become Electra battery materials was uh, was nickel. Everybody's heard Elon Musk asking for nickel, people to make more nickel. And at the same time, you also have battery technologies changing, uh, LFP, which no nickel, no cobalt become a real big success. I think in, in China, maybe it's, it's, it's captured uh, almost half of the markets um, in a, in a, sh- in a short period, but you're betting big on nickel, obviously.
2: Yeah. And you look, the LFP quality of that battery has gone up. No, no question about it. It's still not going to find its way into luxury vehicles. Yeah. And in Northern climates, LFPs don't perform very well in the cold. So they don't have a, I don't think they have a huge future in, in North America or Europe. Uh, particularly for the the luxury lines and some of these newer vehicles that we're seeing out there but i won't discount it, it it's been helpful you know the, the downside to lfps they're, they're cheaper no. easier to make uh, you can't recycle them there's nothing in there to recycle so there's a there's an end right. of life challenge there but look our, our view on ncm that the ev market's growing at a CAGR of 26 percent through to 2030 you know the supply demand there's there's room for a lot of different cathodes out there north america's got a lot of nickel the, you know, the challenge we have when, when we launched this this new brand, we we likened ourselves to the role of a bridge, right? Bridging the resource endowment that we've got in the continent with all the EV plants that are now being built. Right now, we're we're mining our nickel. China, I think, is about ninety percent of the nickel sulfate conversion market. So to mine it yeah. in Canada, convert it in China, and then bring it back into a North American EV, yeah. doesn't make sense from a sustainability perspective, nor from a cost of the self. That so was actually one of my questions.
1: I, I do sense that there is, uh, you know, apart from obviously market developments and EV demand and uptake, there is kind of a geopolitical aspect to all of this as well. The center of gravity and mining and definitely the EV world is kind of shifting east. It's more Europe. It's North America. Uh, do you think that everything you produce uh, and take in almost is is gonna be from north america or from uh ex china
2: so to speak the feed stock for cobalt is trickier right because most of that's concentrated in the congo so we'll yeah. be uh, purchasing feed from three of the four biggest cobalt operations in the world china mali and, and glencore and we've got five-year contracts there nickel you know again in discussing with the automakers uh, the the advice is let's focus on PCAM, and then we will jointly figure out the nickel and i don't want to you know I don't want to simplify it Uh, the nickel plant relative to the cobalt plant is is a big it's a big lift but we've got a federal government that's got a two billion dollar strategic innovation fund they want to build out the supply chain this is an area we can control so it'll be a it'll be a joint effort at the end of the day but I do think when it comes to the nickel inputs I, I don't know why you would need to go beyond North America given the endowments that we have on both sides of the border
1: and there is, uh, as as you mentioned, there there is a political wall now. You know, after yeah. after decades of neglect, people seem to have woken up about critical minerals and supply chains. And I guess COVID also gave all of this a bit of a boost as well. So there is yeah. this onshoring is definitely a trend. Oh.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because when I when we started the company and we toured DC, we were in the White House. In fact, I was back there a few months back now. So there's a uh, there's acute attention. And, and there's a there's a greater understanding they it wasn't it's not so much going to them to them explaining the importance of the supply chain it's more how can we help you so the the political awareness is always there there's still the nimbyism on extraction you know if you go to dod doe they'll, they'll help you with infrastructure plants and 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 and, and things of like of that nature they don't really want to get in the extraction game so there's some work to be done on that side but to your point about onshoring, where the where the discourse has changed is really within the the boardrooms of the auto companies and their and their battery right. partners, right? The investments are being made here. COVID, microchip shortages, it just underlines the obvious that our our, our supply chains are too big. We're circumnavigating the world sometimes yeah. twice over to get our battery parts to us or our car parts. And there's a real focus on getting that domesticated. And now you've got the, the ESG rationale to do it as well, right? Measuring your scope three emissions for yeah. transport of these elements around the world is, uh, is, is gonna be accounted for in your vehicle. And that's an important, attribute that consumers are looking at
1: and also it it gives auto manufacturers something to say right that they're i mean i think shipping international shipping is something like 17 percent of global emissions or anyway it's 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 huge it's it's part of a everything is part of a, a bigger process right and i think that's where you kind of tap into a whole range of different processes or trends that are that are going on
2: yeah i mean container rates i think are 10x out of china that what they were a year ago so and and delays right but when we ordered our plant equipment for our refinery we made a deliberate decision not to order stuff out of china we had a, a, options to build them in europe north america or china we thought we can't do china because of the unreliability of that of that mm-hmm. network when you're on a on a, a tight construction timeline we got 12 months until we're producing so that's an important part the other the other piece that plays in our favor when we talk to our the supply chain is, is being in Canada, right? We've got a hydroelectric dam a matter of kilometers away from us. So we're 100% uh, hydroelectric. So we've got clean power. It's hydromet, so we've got zero emissions. Uh, there will be no cleaner cobalt sulfate production on the planet. Uh, we know that for a fact, and I think we can carry that through to the nickel production, to the PKM as well. And that plays into the overall narrative that we're trying to uh, strive for.
1: Even though it's, it's a North American story, there's also a bit of, uh, internecine, uh, fighting in, in the industry. So, uh, there's a question from, from the audience here about, uh, the buy America first, that kind of thing. I know there's, there's ongoing talks about that. What is your view of, uh, of that particular, I guess it's part of NAFTA, the whole thing, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, it started with the last administration where there was a big push to support this onshoring. But I think, you know, frankly, just good business sound business decisions reinforce that. Uh, and if the if the buy America has to do with you know Canada relative to the U.S., well, it doesn't really impact uh, Canada. If you look under, for instance, the Defense Procurement Act, where DoD can step in and, and buy materials and fund projects, Canada is treated no different than any other of the uh, of the U.S. states, and it's the only country in the world that gets that kind of special treatment. There is a critical mineral roundtable cabinet ministers from Ontario, Quebec. Uh, ottawa in touch with white house officials and others and we're part of that dialogue so i think there's a there's a view that canada can and and must play an important role particularly because mine development is easier in this country and the resource side is a piece they see us really playing a role in
1: i do believe biden has said that you know they're not that much into mining but they're very much into processing you know at least canada can fill the whole supply chain i mean as Electra is an example of that. You also have a, a cobalt project in, in Idaho.
2: Yeah, I and mean, the, cobalt, the cobalt plant, I guess it'll, it'll have to, it's an open question, I think, what the future holds, right? Are we a chemicals company, as, as some of the analysts are now starting to characterize us as? Are we vertically integrated or do we have two different companies in one? I think we'll have to wait and see because that Idaho asset, cobalt's had a great run. It's sitting at about $29 on the metal side from a low of 12 I think we'll finish over 30 this year. So I, I wouldn't want to make any rash decisions but as we continue to drill and i I do see a mine there it's a few years out and the question is whether you would do that within electra or try to you know farm it out or 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 do some other value or create a transaction for shareholders
1: you mentioned prices yeah and cobalt is you know is up substantially lithium is at an all-time high nickel itself is up double digits if not more is there a bit of a chicken and egg situation maybe arising where there's huge demand for EVs? It pushes up raw material prices, and then at some point it becomes a little bit too expensive. There comes demand destruction because raw materials is some uh, almost 50-40% of the cost of an EV. So what gives first,
2: the prices or the demand? I should probably be asking you that question. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I have that I'm in, I'm in the UK, uh, actually currently and meeting with investors. And that's one of the questions I had this afternoon is, how do you fix this? Anybody who studies the, uh, the demand projections knows that the raw material supply is going to become an issue. I mean, two years ago, everybody was chasing their tails over cobalt. Now it's nickel. Uh, we're running to Indonesia looking looking for nickel deposits in a state that's going to have a terrible, you know, carbon footprint, but it's going to be responsive to our demand needs. So we've. We've got a lot of conflicting issues. We've got the, again, there's there's opportunities to develop assets in Western economies that are taking way too long to permit. But when I look at the supply chain, yeah, the the, the resource extraction side just can't respond fast enough. For Electra and for what we're doing, I think we're, our, our glide path is is well-timed. I think our cobalt's gonna be early for this market. So a lot of it will follow our clients' battery making process back to Japan, uh, Korea, maybe maybe Europe. But as we get the, the PCAM and the nickel plant operating, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to say the nickel is somebody else's problem because we're going to have mm. to source it from somewhere. Mm. But our view is we need we need partners. We're a tiny player in a land of giants, and if mm. we can hitch a part of our wagon to a big automaker and their battery partner, then it gives us a little bit of security because they are actively looking to lock down you know, five to ten years of of nickel supply as we're as we're developing our own asset. Out.
1: You say you're a tiny player at sixty thousand tons. That's
2: kind of what you're
1: targeting uh, at the plant. Uh, that's not nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and not the, nothing. No, yeah. no, you're right. I mean, it, our, our cobalt plant—we last week made the decision to upsize that. Our bottleneck was our crystallizer. So instead of 5,000 tons, subject to a permit amendment, we're going to be making 6,500 tons of cobalt. So, okay. you know, by um, at, at the 5,000 level, that's about one and a half million EVs per year on an 811 cathode, with yeah. assumptions of battery size. So the nickel equivalent, yeah, it's it's a big number. I mean, it's not dissimilar to the plant that. BHP just commissioned in Perth, right? They're, they're making nickel sulfate there in Australia now. And the idea would be that we would replicate that. Do we do it alone or with a partner? I don't think it matters. I think the important thing is we've got the permits, we've got the industrial park. We've quietly added to our footprint. We're now 600 acres of land, clay bedded infrastructure. And so I think this has to be with a view to vertical integration, probably more than one client on the back end. And so we're, we're working through some MOUs. On that front, but we, we can't do it alone because the, the nickel plant is probably going to exceed our, well, it will exceed our 200 million market cap. So there's a lot of work yeah. to be done there.
1: On the same subject still, I'm going to read this here, a question, BMO, vice chair, David Jacobson has warned of a potential critical minerals crisis, not unlike the seventies oil crisis. Mm. It's another way of looking at raw materials prices.
2: How likely is that scenario? If you, um, I studied economics in school, so there are laws of supply and demand dictate that there's going to be a a price response and they'll they'll have to be a supply response. I think policy is going to play a part of this, but I think we all see this wall of worry building up instead of four and five years out. Um, you know, part of my response to the same investor earlier today is I I think the voice of the, of a Jim Farley at Ford is going to be a little louder than Trent Mell at Electra, right at the white house saying, here's what we need. And I think as they spend more and you pointed out Frick there's, they're so reliant on not just security of supply, but a logical A cost structure for the sale price of their batteries that um, this i've been told this is right in the c-suite supply of cobalt and nickel is something they talk about at the top top levels of the Mm -hmm. automakers and i think it's those kinds of voices when they come to the table that's going to result in a couple of things i think there'll be some policy changes there'll be uh, some Mm -hmm. structural changes to get these assets to market faster and i will not be surprised to see auto companies buying more and more mining assets to, to lock up their critical, critical needs.
1: And also, I mean, if you, if you look at Australia, they built, uh, I think, force you mean mines in like a six year period. So,
2: you know, if you bang some heads together, you know, it, it can be done. It's a bit like the COVID response, right? With the pharmacies and at pharmaceutical yeah. companies and coming up with the vaccine. I and mean, you need, you need that, you need that. Oh shoot moment. If I can put it that way, right. For everybody yeah. to come together and realize we gotta, we gotta act and act fast. and I, I think we're getting there. Uh, I, I guess I don't worry too much because I, I always assume that there will be a there will be a supply response. We've got a, some smart minds here in the industry to find the resources, but we're going to need the resolve and the support of the capital markets and the regulators to just to get them built faster.
1: We probably, you know, maybe need a, a warp speed, like we had a warp speed program for vaccines. Uh, why not have a warp speed program for cobalt, nickel, and and lithium? Is there a bit of uh, education or
2: PR to be done for cobalt uh, as a metal? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the cobalt industry needed to clean up its act, right? The DRC issues of of child labor and and corruption, Dan Gertler, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you don't want to be in the DRC. On the other hand, that's where mother nature, put the resources. And so as an industry, the likes of Tesla and VW have teamed up with the likes of ERG and Glencore to work with the Fair Cobalt Alliance to clean up that supply chain, right? Make sure it's big, I've worked, I worked at Barrick, I've worked at big companies. You operate your mines around the world by the same standards. And if you go into these operations, they don't look dissimilar to what you'll see in the rest of the world in Australia and elsewhere. So you gotta, it's, it's, it's sourcing, it's tracing, it's certification, it's third-party audits, and all of that is coming together. So then the elimination of cobalt in the battery, well, it stems from two things. One is the crazy prices we saw in 2017, $50 a pound. Mm-hmm. And uh, a and concern over what it did to the cost of the cathode and, and of course, overall availability. And second, and maybe more importantly, because it had a lasting searing, I guess, image on the brain of, of these children working in minds of some of the artisanal mm-hmm. plays and, that that issue can be dealt with just like we dealt with blood diamonds just like we deal with tin from the northeast and, and the answer is there i think we we can get there the challenge of getting cobalt out of the battery is real the thermal runaway is real and the dirty little secret is that the i won't name any executives but the car company execs that say they're going to zero cobalt they're not going to cobalt zero they're they're going to low cobalt and so there's a little bit of a slip of the tongue uh we're going from a 111 at the initial cathode where it's a third nickel cobalt manganese we're on our way from a 622 to 811, so 80% nickel. And in many cases, we're at 90% nickel. So nickel gives you that range and that density. Going to zero cobalt, uh, the auto company engineers will tell you it's, it's a, the trade-offs are not worth it. The risk reward of a little bit of extra mileage and the risk of thermal runaway is just not there. So I don't see it. Even the ELNO, some of the new technologies you're hearing out of, out of Europe, there's small amounts. they just, they're taking it out of the name for marketing reasons. I was surprised. I think one out of five
1: Mercedes sold this year was electric. So you know, one one tends to concentrate on on a Tesla or you know the uh, Rivian, the you know stratospheric s- share prices. But you know, a, a good old Merck, electric ah, Merk okay. is is probably you know in your future.
2: Uh. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I bought so I bought a Tesla three a couple of years ago, and uh, in North America, you didn't have a lot of choices. Right? There was an yeah. Audi. There was I can't remember what else, but there, there was very little to choose from. Uh, at the China, the Shanghai Auto Show going on right now, I think there's about I recall 239 different models of new energy vehicles that are being displayed as we speak. Half of them are you know pure EV, and the other half, you know, roughly are, are hybrids. So the, the selection has already doubled this year. We've gone from 14 to 28 in the U.S. It's going to go up by another 60% next year. So we in Canada are going to be the beneficiaries of greater availability. But the the, the European models that are out there now, the microcars we just wouldn't like them. It's moving fast. I, I, I think, so let me just, one last thought. Last year during COVID, passenger sales in Europe were down 26%. EV sales were up, I think, threefold, roughly, yeah. if my math is, math is mm-hmm. right. Year-to-date in North America, I think we're up 140%. The investment announcements, the full velocity of investments, mm-hmm. the amount of of, of of dollars that are being thrown to infrastructure in North America suggests to me that the EV adoption rate in North America is is a lot closer than people think. And yeah. I think in two years from now, It'll be a very different landscape.
1: Excellent gentlemen. Yeah, Trent, it's hard to get the the kids and the dog into the back of a micro. <laughs> that is the issue. So listen, both of you, really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so Thank much you. for taking the time. Thanks, Thanks Trent, for new success. Thank right, you, Trent.
0: you have it another episode of the northern minor podcast we have one more for the year coming next week and again if you're looking for that last minute christmas gift do not forget northernminer.com slash subscribe if you want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next week merry christmas and take care